Welcome to Lit with Charles, a podcast on all things literary where I interview people who've either written books or have interesting things to say about them. If you're like me, then you love reading, but maybe you're not sure what you should be reading or maybe you feel intimidated by conversations around books. The main aim of this podcast is to make literature exciting and accessible and hopefully make you discover new books and authors that are off the beaten track. In this podcast, I try to cover all genres and types of books, from serious historical nonfiction to trashy novels, and I talk to all sorts of authors so that it never feels like the same episode twice. I think that books are, from the writer's perspective, such an interesting kind of message in a bottle to our former selves. You know, I think about this book and I'm like, wow, I... I stand by the book so much so, but it is a version of myself that is not current. In today's episode, I speak to the writer Avery Carpenter Forey, who wrote the fun and enjoyable debut novel, Social Engagement. It's a young woman's journey to getting married that is full of obstacles and revelations. At first glance, this may seem like standard chiclet fare, but I was pleasantly surprised to find that there was a darker undertone to this work that gave it an interesting shape and edge. Aside from struggling with the aftermath of a past relationship and family trauma, the young woman at the heart of this novel deals with an eating disorder, and there's a whole angle of body symbolism that gives it an unusual flavor. It's Edith Wharton in the age of TikTok with David Cronenberg as a cameo guest star. Its tribe of privileged Upper East Siders are well-defined and certainly more palatable than the brats of Brett Easton Ellis. And it's no spoiler to reveal that the wedding at the heart of this novel is a total car crash. And who doesn't love a good car crash at a wedding, given that the novel opens at the end? In this episode, Avery and I talk about her work and how it came to be, and we meander down her literary path to uncover the influences in her journey to becoming a writer. I'm here today with Avery Carpenter Forey, the author of the novel Social Engagement, a novel that I uh, read recently. Good morning, Avery. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, Charles. Excited to be here. Very excited to speak to you. Where are you speaking to us from? New York or elsewhere? I'm right outside New York. I'm in Connecticut, looking out at a beautiful, crisp fall day, ready to talk books and back to school. Ready to talk books is my kind of jam. <laughs> Let's talk about your book, uh, first of all, which was your debut novel, I believe, uh, called Social Engagement. It's a look into uh, the wedding vibes of a certain generation of New Yorkers slash Rhode Islanders. And there's a lot of different currents at play in the book. Uh, but the first thing I wanted to talk about was the title of the book, because it's social engagement, but I keep thinking about it as the social engagement. And I realize this feels like a very Facebook moment, like drop the the. <laughs> yeah. So did, did you drop the the and what was the reason for that? And because I feel like there's maybe an explanation there or is it just a sort of random thing where you felt better without that article? Yeah. Um, well, this is a great question. And thank you for giving me an opportunity for a Justin Timberlake moment. I love the idea that <laughs> I did it to drop the the. But really, <laughs> it was because of the double entendre with social engagement, as in 
Instagram, internet social engagement and engagement as in marital engagement and getting a diamond ring. So we really liked the double entendre that the title was something that, and I know you talk to a lot of authors and titles are such a important part of the process, but sometimes one of the trickiest and you want it to be the stickiest part. You want it to be something that someone sees and instantly gravitates towards, but they're hard. I mean, I had three different working titles at different points and this title didn't come about until after the book was sold. My editor came up with the title actually. It's definitely the judgiest part of a book. Definitely. Along with the cover for sure. And I think, yeah, my original title we were working with I did From This Day Backward, which was commentary on Mm -hmm. the wedding. The structure of the novel. Yeah, the structure of the novel and the fact that the main character, for those listening, goes back and looks at her social media posts from the past year. So you kind of piece together what went wrong in her marriage through the evidence on her phone. So I liked that, but it leaned a little bit too light, I thought, the title, because as I know, we'll talk about there are some darker elements in the book. And then Human Content was another working title because I really liked the play on the, there are some anatomy themes in the book. And that was sort of my attempt at a Sally Rooney title, sort of a little Uh bit aloof, like normal people, human content. Social engagement. Yeah, social engagement. Social engagement is what we landed on. And I think if it was the social engagement, it wouldn't play as well with the social media engagement part because you never say, when people talk about clicks, they say, how much social engagement are you getting? the social engagement so social media is a heavy part of the novel a lot of the action of the novel and plot developments are referred to in sort of a, a fun social media lingo of like emojis and commentaries on on that is that an integral part today of romance and weddings of contemporary new yorkers in your opinion Definitely. I think that weddings are inherently performative. It's sort of a press release for a couple of like, this is who we are. And for better, for worse, I think that it's also a private self. There are a lot of moments during a wedding day that are private and really special and intimate, but it is inherently public. You're kind of standing up on a pedestal and you're a celebrity for a day. And I think, especially with social media, that's become a way to some couples are even monetizing their weddings, you know, getting brand deals from their weddings. And I think mm-hmm. it is a sort of unavoidable. I'm curious to know, did you watch that Beckham documentary? I'm watching it right now. I'm two episodes in. Yes, their wedding was such a spectacle. The purple. <laughs> the purple <Yeah>. too. <laughs> Talk about monetizing a wedding. I mean, wow. You know, that what, was what a performance. wild. Yes, a performance. And it's almost like that was like Cirque du Soleil or something. I don't even know what they were going for. But yeah, it is very much a performance. And there's a huge gap or schism a lot of times between the way a couple is or people are in private and the way that they present on our screens. And I really wanted to explore that with the novel. So you start the book actually with the, let's say, underbelly after effect of all this performance and really a character that fully reveals a, a lot of pain. And uh, I mean, you start in a very imperfect place for what should be a perfect occasion. So there's a satirical element to your novel. There's a anthropological exploration. There's a certain amount of darkness that hides behind a seemingly perfect moment. 
I'm assuming you're familiar with this environment that you're writing about with this sort of, you know, Upper East Side tribe in New York. So where did this satirical dark element come from in your mind? What were you trying to communicate here? I love that you use the word anthropological because I think that's essential to any examination of a particular culture, but it becomes trickier when you are a part of the culture that you are seeking to critique and expose. I think that it's really essential and important that the main character in that case is an insider-outsider and has some level of distance. So Callie, my main character, grew up with sort of one foot in this world, but she wasn't as wealthy as the family that she's orbiting like a satellite. And I think that, you know, the model of like Nick Carraway and Gatsby as a classic or like Emma in Jane Austen's Emma, it's kind of the someone who is able to have these gimlet-eyed observations of the world that they inhabit was really important to me. Without the resources necessarily. Exactly, exactly. And so they're able to want to embrace it, but also look at it with some side eye and some trepidation. And that was something that I definitely tried to get across. One of my favorite quotes to this effect is Curtis Sittenfeld. I heard her on a podcast quote Saul Bellow saying, I'm not an ornithologist, I'm a bird, meaning like I am part of this too. Like I never want to, you never want to go in as a writer or a reader, super snarky. You know, you always want to be kind of we're all humans and that's why we read, right? It's to expose our shared humanity. And I think no matter how right for satire any sort of class is, you also want to look at those people with empathy. So we're going to talk about your uh, journey as a writer, your life with regard to books in, in a second. But so broadly speaking, how autobiographical was this book? I mean, I, I'm assuming not from a point of the actual events, but from your observations of this world, how connected did you feel to some of the situations or characters that you were writing about? I think that because, especially because it's a debut and also probably partially because I'm a woman, um, people tend to think that what you're writing automatically is autofiction. And of course, there are parts of it that are inspired by my own life. Um, I was really interested in your interview with Olivia Sujik, the sympathy author, when she talked about that. And I ordered her second book, Exposure, right after I listened because I was like, oh, debut, having imposter syndrome, being a woman, feeling on display. That's very <laughs> much where yeah. my head has been yeah. at the past six months. Um, but yeah, I think that I kind of took certain characters. There's no character that is a one-for-one -one replica of someone in my life. Like everyone's kind of a potpourri. There's, you know, I took ingredients of different situations, mix them together. Um, the main character is I think she's, I like to think she's sort of me when I was 25, like really hungover and snarky. Like I'm not, <laughs> kind of feeling a little bit sassy about the world around me. I definitely don't feel like, and it's interesting because as you know, publishing is a slow business. It takes a while to write a book and then get it out into the world. So when I started writing this, I was around the age of the main character and now I'm in a pretty different phase of life. Older you know, I, and wiser. and Yeah, she's 29. I was, and I just come off, I started this a year and a half after I got married and I was going to a lot of weddings. I was very much in that world and mindset. And now I'm 34, I have a baby. What I'm thinking about is pretty different. And I think that books are 
from the writer's perspective, such an interesting kind of uh, message in a bottle to our former selves. You know, I think about this book and I'm like, mm. wow, I I stand by the book so much so, but it is a version of myself that is not definitely current. And Callie is not me. Like, I'm still married. I didn't leave my husband on the night of my wedding. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of things. <laughs> but, but I think some of her observations are definitely things that I've thought. So let's talk about this message in a bottle to a former self. And I'd love to start from the beginning of your reading and writing uh, journey. And can you share a significant moment or a specific book from your childhood or teens that played a role in, in your love of books and your desire to become a writer? Yes. I always associated as a young girl books with rebellion, which is hilarious to think about now because books are kind of the anti-rebellion. It means you're studious and good in today's mm -hmm. current world. But because I, I used to stay up really late reading under the covers and I'd wake up bleary eyed and my parents, I don't think quite knew what to do because on one hand, they were happy that I was reading, but they were also like, you need to sleep. It was your version of going out to nightclubs. At the exactly. Time. Exactly. It was the, the nerds nightclub. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so when I was in middle school, I loved Enid Blyton who wrote like The Secret Seven and The Famous Five. Mm -hmm. and But the one that really has stuck with me, is The Magic Faraway Tree, because it kind of opened up this world of fantasy. It was sort of a precursor to getting into then Harry Potter and the Phantom Tollbooth and fantasy that made me feel like, oh, the world isn't just as it seems. Like there's so much possibility. And even though I didn't think I was necessarily going to climb a tree and discover magical creatures, I thought that there was possibility lurking in my backyard that wasn't there before. And that somehow fired your imagination and, and love of reading. And were, were you a huge fantasy reader uh, from there on in? I was when I was younger and I'm not as much now, which I don't know. And I know that there are so many, like the fourth wing has completely blown up, A Court of Thorns and Roses, all these huge book talk books I haven't really gotten into. But I think now my imagination really lights up when I think about people's relationships and interior lives. And when I was little, it was more like things outside of myself and discovering fantastical possibilities. Like I loved the Narnia series as well. I am talking to you from a closet. So it's like, you know, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I see kind that. Of. You're, you're in a wardrobe. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so I did love fantasy as a kid and I'm not as much into it now. Maybe I need to get back into it. I don't know. Do you read fantasy? I don't, but I, I think it, I had similar references. Narnia, that was certainly a big one. I was also a huge fan of Roald Dahl. I loved Roald Dahl. I can't believe I didn't mention Roald Dahl. Yes. But so what's interesting is you also mentioned Enid Blyton. We're talking about Roald Dahl. And those are authors who actually have encountered some issues with regard to whether or not they're still acceptable. I mean, I think Eden Blyton books now come with sort of warnings and Roald Dahl's estate's been forced to apologize for anti-Semitism. And so was our childhood ruined by these bad writers? I don't know. I know. It's tough because that that reminds me, I read a book this summer called Monsters by Claire Detterer, and it's all about like whether or not you can separate art from the artist. And, you know, she uses like a love of Woody Allen movies or Roman Polanski to mm -hmm. as a jumping off point to explore that question. And I think like I don't know that there's a right answer. I think it can be pretty personal, but I don't think we should be changing books to fit a curtain cultural narrative. I think like having a foreword or having some sort of understanding of 
the climate in which they were written is important. And I, yeah, it's it's tricky though. I think I agree with that point of view, having a, an acknowledgement that certain elements of the book are problematic given our current climate and the, you know, the way our moral framework has shifted for the better. I think that's probably a right answer. So what do you, if a mom or a father comes to you and says, Hey, Avery, what, you know, my kid needs to read more, you know, what would you recommend to a, a young blossoming mind to get more into reading? So I think that the first series that got me really fired up was The Babysitter's Club, which I know now it's been made into a show and The Babysitter's Club is still around, but there's probably an update for that. But for a middle schooler, I'd say give them candy and then transition them into something maybe a little hardier. Mm -hmm. But I think right now, I mean, I have a 10-month-old, so she only likes books if there are pop-ups in them, which I'm like, okay, at least. <laughs> Understandably. <laughs> yes. Like our favorite right now is called Moo. It's just pictures of cows with pop-ups. So, you know, whatever gets them looking at books, I think is acceptable. Sounds like a James Joyce novel almost. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, what's a book that changed your mind at any age? What was something that changed your perspective and, and how did it change your perspective. Yeah. So Never Let Me Go by Kaju Ishiguro. Mm -hmm. I was so moved by this book. You know, it's a quieter novel, especially at the beginning. And I don't want to give anything away for people who haven't read it, but it's such There's a, a classic. There's a big spoiler in that book. Yeah. It's a big spoiler in that book. But I think that that book made me much warier of technology. I've always been a happy adopter of the latest technology and excited about advances in our culture and progressive in that way. And I think it made me pause with regards to that. And also in regards to caregiving as a profession and as a a movement, you know, I think that it is something that is selfless and beautiful, but it's also in this book, it is sort of a way to tamp down potential resistance, which I mm. it's it's hard to talk about this because if someone hasn't read the book, but Absolutely. And so you would say you are warier of technological developments and progress following that book? Definitely. I think that this was the first book I read that was a dystopia. When I read 1984, I was pretty young and I didn't take to it in the same way. Um, this was the first dystopian novel that I read where I really empathize, that really humanized these characters and really humanized the situation they were in. It also was eerie because I was like, I could see a future in which this happened. Like It wasn't that far-fetched, mm -hmm. I guess, mm -hmm. um, based on the way the world is moving. And it made me sad because I didn't want that for at a human micro level. I think I've always thought of these things as fairly abstract and macro cultural movements. Mm. And when you zoomed in and saw how it affected people, it was disturbing. Yeah, absolutely. And so more broadly, what are some genres or, or other authors that have had a big influence on you as a person or more specifically as a writer? I think that I'm really drawn to, and this isn't necessarily what I write. I would love to try something like this someday, but I'm really drawn to people who break some sort of barrier that I had in my mind for what makes a book, like Carmen Maria Machado in Her Body and Other Parties and in The Dream House, kind of reinvented and chopped up my idea of what makes a book in a fascinating way. And The Dream House especially is about an abusive relationship between two women and every chapter tells parts of the story through a different genre lens. So it will be like relationship as horror. And then the chapter proceeds 
with the formula of a horror novel or genre. It's really interesting and really well done. So she, I think, is doing amazing work. I think authors like Dolly Alderton and Helen Fielding made me be more comfortable with writing what is now, I don't know if we're still calling it women's fiction, because I kind of hate that term, but, you know, books that are just fun to read. And Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, go down easily, a spoonful of sugar. I think we shouldn't be ashamed of that. And they both made me realize that you can do that and also be really artful and smart about it. There's a way to sort of intersect that fun element that may be inspirational to all readers, especially women, but also provoke some thought. Exactly. You mentioned Sally Rooney earlier in one of your answers. Is she an author that you feel inspires you at all or not so much? No, she definitely does. I think that her dialogue especially, I thought the adaptation of Normal People was such a testament to just her curation of a vibe. Like that Mm. book translated to screen so well because she was able to just like capture that the dropper of the vibe between them like the miscommunications and the sometimes uncomfortable nature of infatuation when you're that age and the class distinctions i love sally roney i think something that's hard for me to reconcile is how amazing i think that she as a personality she didn't ask to become as famous in the literary world as she is and i don't think that she's having as much fun with it as I hope I would if I was. (laughs) Yeah. I think that she addresses that a little bit in her last novel, Beautiful World. Where are you? Beautiful World, Have have you read that or? I did. What was the character, Alice, maybe? The one who was the novelist Yeah, one of them is a novelist, clearly a a reincarnation of Sally Rooney, who's just not that happy about her her success. No, and I understand. I mean, I think that there are probably – She's been thrust into the spotlight, didn't ask for it. She's probably, it seems like a writer who's naturally more introverted, obviously brilliant. Um, but if someone put my book on a bucket hat that went viral, I would be thrilled. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. like, let's embrace of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, yeah. I feel like she should be embracing the bucket hat a little yeah. bit more. But, you know, <laughs> but she's a genius. She could do what she wants. Yeah. What's a favorite book of yours that I've never heard of? Notes on Your Sudden Disappearance by Ellison S. Patch is a beautiful book. It's about two sisters who are infatuated with a boy that they grow up going to school with. He's kind of like the lifeguard at the local pool. And I'm not going to give anything away, but tragedy strikes when they're young and it follows one of the sisters throughout the rest of her life. And her relationship with this boy that they both loved, that the sister dated, grows. It's very... I think that the hook or the premise is not half as interesting as the writing. Once you're a page Mm -hmm. in, you'll be hooked on the voice. It does a really great job of portraying a young voice really well. Like it's Mm -hmm. a, the voice starts when the narrator is maybe 12 and she's so quirky and funny and irreverent. And then you grow with her. And it's one of those books that you'll cry and laugh on the same page. And that's very rare, but also the writing's beautiful and it's pretty literary. And so why has this book not received more attention or has it received a lot of attention and I'm just not aware of it? I don't know. I don't know. I think it was maybe too full. I think it came out in either 2020 or 2021. Either way, it was a depth of, it was COVID time. So that was a hard time to come out with a book, first of all. I also think sometimes a lot of the books that receive a lot of attention these days, I think have a very 
buzzy premise or something that's, Mm -hmm. you know, even I think um, I was so happy that this book received the attention it did tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow that had like a video, you know, when you describe that book, it's pretty easy to describe. You're like, it's about someone who invented a video game and that sticks. Whereas this book, when I tried to describe it, I meandered even just trying to describe it to you, you know, because I'm trying to make Mm -hmm. it sound the premise sound interesting when really it's the character that's interesting. So you have to get into it. That sounds like it goes against every editorial guideline that, that you know a <laughs> publisher would tell you. Like, if you can't talk about your book in a minute, then it's not worth publishing. Right? Totally, <laughs> totally. But I'm sure some whoever, and she's published before this author, but whoever, the editor that read this book, I'm sure they got one page in and they're like, I can't stop reading it. So that speaks for itself. Like, I don't think that everything needs to have a two-second pitch, although- in order to sell a debut, you kind of do need that. You're right. What's the best book that you've read in the last 12 months? The Rachel Incident by Caroline O'Donohue. I loved this book. It's compared to Sally Rooney. We keep coming back to Sally Rooney. Um, Caroline is an Irish author who lives in London now, I believe. But she is compared to Sally Rooney all the time because of the Ireland connection, but also because she writes about like millennial relationships in your early 20s very well, like Sally Rooney does. She said in interviews, like, people will put four fans of Sally Rooney on my grave. It's just like people are using that to sell her book. What an epitaph. Totally. (laughs) Totally. But I found it really funny and charming. And, you know, Sally Rooney is amazing as well, but her vibe is a little bit darker and melancholy at times. Um, This had its share of darkness too, but it was very witty and upbeat and charming. It's about two college kids living in Cork City who are in school working in a bookshop, which I'm also a sucker for like a bookstore narrative. Mm -hmm. So they're working in a bookstore. The girl, Rachel, is in love with her professor, loves her English professor, and they hatch a plan to try to get her together with her professor. Meanwhile, the professor's actually interested in the male friend, James, who's gay, and they start having an affair. So it's a love triangle of epic proportions. Saucy. Yes, very saucy. Great. We like a saucy book. (laughs) What's a book that you find overrated? What's the book where you find yourself at a dinner party arguing against everyone that this is just not a good book? (laughs) I struggle with this because after being published, I am hesitant to say anything bad about a book because I know how hard it is to write a book and publish a book. But I will say she doesn't need my my approval because she has the world's approval. Lessons in Chemistry, Bonnie Garmis, I which just came out as a show on Apple. I didn't dislike the book, but you know, it's been on the bestseller list for maybe years at this point. It's a huge book. So she once again doesn't need me as a fan. She has enough. But I found that it like spoon fed us 1960s feminism a little bit. Mm, I mm. did like the character development. I thought Elizabeth Zott, the main character, was really funny. And I liked the dog, actually, which I've never said that about. Which apparently they've taken the dog out of the show. Wait, what? I didn't hear that. I haven't seen the show. I haven't seen the show either. But apparently (laughs) the first thing they did was to say, like, the dog doesn't work be done with the dog and let's just have a show about you know chemistry and cooking. I also thought this book was highly overrated. I didn't like it at all. So right answer. Um, Good. Okay. I'm glad that I have a fellow hater in my mess. There you go. But I, you know what? I think given the standard of things that are on viewing platforms these days like Netflix, and which I don't find very 
high, I'm not surprised that they turned it into a very successful show. It was made for that kind of thing. Totally. I will say as I was reading it, I was like, oh, wow, this would be a really good show. Like, it seemed like it was, you know, it makes a lot of sense. It had a cinematic It was almost written for that. Totally. And so this makes this trajectory makes a lot of sense. And I'm into anything, like I will say, anything that gets people reading. So like, this is, this is the type of book that like, a woman who's in a book club whose reading isn't part of her routine or or a man, anyone who just doesn't read that much, this would have crept into their cultural consciousness and they might have it might have been the only book that they read in the last year. And it's a book. Exactly. So, Which is know. not not bad in this era of a lot of competing uh media against reading. What's a book that you're embarrassed not to have read? And when are you gonna get around to reading it? I still haven't read Anna Karenina. Oh, that's also my answer to that question. Really? Yeah, it's I, I, I've never read Anna Karenina, and I'm kind of embarrassed, and I sort of nod politely when people talk about it. I know, but there's also a part of me that thinks there's too much that I want to read that's current that I don't know when I'm going to go back. I maybe I will eventually. Maybe if there's another pandemic, let's hope there's not. But maybe that'll be my time. What is it about? Russian authors that we seem to think we must have read them, but actually we don't. I know. I think there's a sort of intimidation with the Russian authors. I actually have a book, A Swim in the Pond Brilliant in the book. Rain. Yes, George Saunders. I I have not finished it, which is so funny that I'm saying I haven't read the Russian authors. I haven't even read finished the book about the Russian authors. <laughs> the, but the book about the Russian yes, authors. Yeah. But I did find it brilliant. I think he's so warm and smart, George Saunders. But I, yeah. it was kind of one of those that I've been dipping in and out of. And every time I do, it's like a nice warm hug. And he's, he demystifies them a little bit, the Russians. The irony of that book is actually that the commentary on the stories I found more interesting than the stories themselves. A thousand percent. I wanted to skip ahead. Yeah, exactly. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to read this story. I'm just going to read the commentary and just even better. So, but I, I love George Saunders and I agree with you. He's a, he has a very warm voice, a very decent voice. And I find him uh, very appealing in that respect. I agree. I love listening to him on podcasts. I've listened to him multiple times. And every time it's just sort of like a deep breath. You know, he's really calming. I actually emailed him to uh, try and interview him. And he actually responded very kindly, very politely, but said, look, I'm a bit too busy. But even the email that was a rejection email was radiating warmth and kindness. So I I just couldn't hold it against him. So if he's listening, George Saunders, if you're listening, please (laughs) one day come and do the podcast. You're going to get him on someday, I have a feeling. One day, one day. What book would you take to a desert island? So this answer might be cheating, but I really think that if I was going to a desert island, I would want short stories because Mm -hmm. it gives me a little, I would want an amalgamation of things. I would want to be able to have a bunch of different stories and voices. One of my favorite short story collections, the one that I think I'd bring if I was sent to the desert island today is You Think It, I'll Say It by Curtis Sittenfeld. I don't know it. Oh, it's fantastic. Have you read her, Curtis? At all? No, I haven't. Charles, you have to. You'll love Okay, so give us the two-minute intro into okay. the author, into her work, and where to begin and where to end. Yes. Okay, so she her debut is Prep, which came out in the early aughts, I'd say, maybe in the mid-aughts, and that is about a girl at a boarding school, and it is so funny, and talk about like an insider-outsider, gimlet-eyed observation of a certain class. It's that to a T. Um, it has a 
pink ribbon belt on the cover. It was a bestseller when it came out, but the cover is kind of like, you might recognize the cover because that's what people talked about before they read the book. And so that's her debut. And then she went on. What I love about her is that her career is so versatile. Like she wrote this book prep and then her next book, I'm not sure if this was her next one, but she then wrote The American Wife, which was about Laura Bush from the perspective of Laura Bush. And then she wrote Rodham, which was an alternate history in which Hillary didn't marry Bill, Mm. which is fascinating. So it's like, what would have happened? That's maybe what you should start with if you're into politics, especially American politics, because it's really smart and interesting. And then her latest, this is just why I love her. She has so many different themes that she plays with, was called Romantic Comedy. And it's about an SNL writer who this isn't really a spoiler because it's in the jacket copy, but she, you know, has a romance with the famous host musician. But the narrator, because she's an SNL writer, is hilarious. And you really feel like you're on the set of SNL, which is fun. And then she writes a lot of short stories. And this, you think it, I'll say it, I actually brought to give birth with me. So I was reading it in the hospital as I gave birth. As you gave birth, you were reading these short stories. <laughs> yeah, so that's why it's my Desiree pick because everyone told me birth takes forever. You know, you're there for a really long time. And I knew that I'd want something to read, but I didn't want something that would be brand new. I read this collection for the first time years, like maybe six years ago. And then I read it again 10 months ago when I gave birth. I think I'm going to add that as a question to this podcast. What, what were you reading when you gave birth? <laughs> that maybe would be good for the Russians to read the Russians giving birth because yeah, you you're go. already in pain. Exactly. Yeah. What is next in your journey as a writer? Are you planning a, a new book? Or are you writing at the moment? What are your projects? Yeah. So I'm working on my second book. It's pretty different. It's multi-POV, a little bit more domestic suspense, I'd call it. It's not a thriller, but I think that it has... I, I'm pitching it as like Big Little Lies, but for the New York area. Mm-hmm. So we're doing East Coast Big Little Lies. So it's been that, really there's, there's the one line of, of being able to under, catch the subject in a second. There you go. Catch the vibe. So like I told you, my debut, I was kind of looking back at a period of time in my life or just a moment, an age. And now I'm kind of looking forward. Like the characters are in their late 30s and early 40s. So that's been interesting. Well, uh, Avery, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure to speak to you about your journey, your life in books, uh, and also about your novel, your debut novel, Social Engagement, not The Social Engagement, (laughs) which is a really fun read about the wedding vibes of a group of uh, young New Yorkers slash Rhode Islanders. Very enjoyable book. Avery, thank you for your time. Really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you so much, Charles. It was great to meet you. And here's a brief recap of all the books that Avery mentioned in this episode. The first was The Magic Faraway Tree by Enid Blyton. It's a children's series published in the late 1930s, and that was one of her first contacts with literature. She also mentioned the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis that starts with the book The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and it goes on for about five or six books. Absolutely fantastic fantasy series for children. She also mentioned the book Monsters by Claire Dederer, which was published in 2023, that looks at the relationship between problematic authors and their great works. 
The book that changed her mind was Never Let Me Go by Katsuo Ishiguro, published in 2005, that gave her a new perspective with regard to technological developments and the moral quandaries that they raise. The author that she is drawn to and that has most inspired her was Carmen Maria Machado, who's an author of the short story collection Her Body and Other Parties, published in 2017, as well as the memoir In the Dream House, published in 2019. This author showed her how to play with different genres and voices, especially in the latter work In the Dream House, which greatly inspired Avery. Her favorite book that I've never heard of was Notes on Your Sudden Disappearance by Alison Espatch, published in 2022. It's a love story with a very unique and gripping voice. Her favorite book of the last 12 months was The Rachel Incident by Caroline O'Donohue. It's an unconventional and messy love triangle. The book that she found overrated was Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. It's the story of a young female chemist in the 1960s who develops a new career as a TV chef. And for the record, I also found it pretty overrated. The book that she's embarrassed not to have read was Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, a classic Russian novel published in 1878, which I also haven't read. That led us to a discussion on a fantastic book called A Swim in the Pond in the Rain by George Saunders, published in 2021, which is a critical analysis by George Saunders of four Russian short stories, and he takes the reader through what makes them great short stories. It's a book I highly recommend. The book that she would take to a desert island was You Think It, I'll Say It, a short story collection by Curtis Sittenfeld. This is the book that she was reading as she gave birth, so it's got to be entertaining. She also recommends the book Prep and American Wife by the same author. American Wife is a fictionalized portrait of Laura Bush. And the other book by this author that she recommends is Rodham, an alternative history where Hillary Clinton never meets Bill Clinton. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit with Charles. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can always DM me on my Instagram account at Lit with Charles. I try to reply to all my DMs. If you enjoyed this episode, you should definitely subscribe or follow me. And more importantly, tell your friends and family.